Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Marie Ringler here with me from Vienna. Welcome to my podcast, Marie. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So just a short intro, Marie Ringler is a member of Ashoka's Global Leadership Group and leads the work in Europe. Uh, Ashoka envisions a world in which everyone is a change maker, a world where all citizens are powerful and contribute to change in positive ways. Ashoka supports 4,000 leading social entrepreneurs from all over the world and mobilizes a large global community of change makers. Uh, Marie's work is featured extensively in international media, and she is a frequent speaker on conferences focusing on social entrepreneurship and innovation. So, Marie, your world is full of change makers and experts and influencers, I would say, um, and and you meet so many social innovators and also young cha- change makers. Um, so, I'm so so curious to know. What is their picture of uh, the future, really? What does it look like? That's a, a very interesting question. And I think um, what what I'm seeing and hearing from the many, many people that I talk to is that the future as we know it, and I think we all feel that individually, has become more uncertain and more complex than it ever was. And the challenges ahead of us, climate change, but of course also the current pandemic and possible future pandemics, they all pose huge challenges, but also really are a gift to all of us to rethink and to redesign the world in a better way. And that's really what I'm hearing from the many social innovators, young change makers that I work with, is this huge passion for driving change for the good of all that responds to what we're seeing as the big challenges and opportunities. And to me, that is what honestly gives me hope and optimism every day. Do you, do you think there is a risk that um, we all want to contribute, of course, and help out, and there are problems on the table, and we pick one that is closest to us and try to resolve it somehow? But that in itself is more like a kind of problem-resolved future we, we look at then. Still, what about their thoughts about how can we design this future? What is the future we actually want to have? I love your point about sort of a, a a results designed future, right? Like this idea that there is a fixed way of answering to to what we're facing, um, and that I think what what this resonates with in myself is the fact that we all know that we have to be much more agile and fluid, and that our responses to the challenges of the world have to be much more agile and fluid and specific to to what's actually happening. And maybe let me give you a few examples of, of, of why I think that 
what we really need is not so much necessarily a broad consensus about what the future will look like, but more a broad consensus of how we can go into that uncertain future together. Like what are the skills and the abilities and the capacities and um, the processes that we need as societies in order to um, to to really address um, these challenges. So one of the Ashoka Fellows, the Social Entrepreneurs in Our Network that, that we support is working with rats. And why is he working with rats? Because he understood that they have a superior sense of smell. And he understood that they are also very light and small and that they're very intelligent. And so they can be trained to do one of the hardest jobs in the world, which is to detect mines, landmines. And so what he's done is he has taken the unique abilities of these small rats and trained them to sniff landmines. And with that technology, quote unquote, he has been able to clear the entire country of Mozambique of landmines. Now, what is that uh, telling us or what, what is that teaching us, this insight? Well, one thing that I'm taking from, from the work of this amazing social entrepreneur called Bart Vetians is that we should look for abilities and skills in places that we don't typically look right? Overlooked abilities. Um, that's one. The other is that any type of change in this world comes by changing mindsets. Deep change comes from changing the way we think about a problem. We used to think about landmines as a problem that could only be addressed by Terminator-style heavy technology, super expensive, men in, you know, these huge, you know, weaponized suits that would, you know, um, make sure that we cleared um, the land of these mines. And all of a sudden, here we have a very nimble solution. And one that communities, local communities can take into their own hands. So they're not dependent anymore on, you know, big international organizations necessarily, you know, providing them with this sort of high tech support. No, they can themselves take their own fate into their hands. And to me, it's those kinds of changes in how we think about problems that will help us move out of crisis. And I, I guess, you know, there's there's many examples, you know, of, of, of how to look at that from the perspective of, say, climate change <laughs> and other, you know, big, big challenges that we face as societies, poverty being one of them, for example, as well. Yeah, and to be able to provide solutions where they're self-sustaining, right, that we don't, like, sell a solution where they're dependent on somebody else, right, but that it really works. Mm, yeah, and open up new possibilities, right? Like a solution that's not sort of the end goal in itself, but it's actually the next step to self-sufficiency. It's the next step to being able mm. to tend to your land again, to plant carrots, to walk into the forest, to have kids safely go to school, etc. Okay. Are there, are there any other examples of, you know, how, how you can build more resilient societies through social innovation that, that you have in your pocket? 
Absolutely. One of my um, favorite examples is uh, is uh, a fabulous social entrepreneur from the Netherlands, Jos de Blok. And he has really, truly revolutionized um, and, uh, you know, uh, very successfully the market for home care, both for sick people and for elderly people. And because his solution completely flipped the way we think about care for our older people uh, on its head and has been super successful in delivering superior quality for its patients and increased, uh, hugely increased actually, the happiness and well-being of the people in the care jobs, they've been able to capture 85% of the market share in the Netherlands in the last 10 years. And they now have 14,000 employees. And his model is one that focuses on small, lean, self-organized teams of local nurses that essentially organize their way of caring for their local patients through the expertise and knowledge and know-how and passion that they have because they're rooted in these communities. And it's a system that, because it's self-organized, creates a lot of autonomy and a sense of self-efficacy for, for these nurses that in the traditional system are highly controlled, highly hierarchical, very much organized in a Fordist industrial model, right? You have five minutes uh, to see this patient. You have three minutes to talk to him or her. You have two minutes, uh, you know, to make sure that they get, um, you know, uh, that their their wound, you know, is is changed, uh, dressing is changed, et cetera, et cetera. So he completely changes that. He humanizes uh, care at home, and he humanizes it not only for the patient, but also for those who work in his organization and has reduced all the hierarchies and the control mechanisms. And that's freeing up people to be people and to be the best they can be. And to me, that's not only a wonderful example of how to address the specific challenge that we face across the world of how do we better care for our old and sick and vulnerable populations, but it's also showing a different way of leading and a different way of working for humans and for, uh, for the earth, how to care for, for people around us in a different way. Hmm. That's a great, great example. One would hope that a lot of people would copy-paste that formula, right, or that approach. Yes. Um, unfortunately, it's not that easy to copy and paste some of these examples. And that's mm. also one of the reasons that we as Ashoka exist, because we support these wonderful, fabulous social entrepreneurs in sharpening their replication models and their scaling models and in creating local connections and um, opening doors for them to speak to, to decision makers uh, and investors mm. and funders. I know that you're also focusing on preparing um, the next generation to to navigate in a, in this kind of rapidly changing world uh, by making sure that they have the necessary critical skills. How, how do you go about that and what skills are you focusing on? 
I think what we are learning from the work with our 4,000 Ashoka Fellows across the world is that when we look at the work of those that are working with young people, is that 90% of them actually put kids in charge. So they are also flipping the traditional model of youth participation um, and basically saying, you know, this is not about participation only. This is about true, truly including um, young people in the process of decision-making, in the design of programs and making them, giving them the skills to steward not only their own lives, but also to be leaders for their communities and for their friends and for their schools and, um, and for their societies. And what is amazing about this insight that we as Ashoka have gained from the work of these leading social entrepreneurs in the last 40 years is that when you put kids in charge at an early age, they grow up differently. They become different types of adults, right? They become the kind of leaders that we look for, that we seek as we're addressing all the challenges that we face um, in this world. And so making sure that young people find their own power and that they can try and test and have ideas and, you know, are supported by people around them to, to be those leaders and to be those drivers um, and to be the ones fixing issues for the world is something that's incredibly powerful, not only for those kids and those who benefit from their ideas, but it's it's a powerful change for us as societies. It's a different way for us as society to think about the future. Mm. Well, Marie, uh, if we go back to, to you, um, what would you say is your true passion? You know, that thing that you're also willing to, in a way, also sacrifice or a lot for, or even suffer for if needed. I don't know. What could that be for you? Hmm. I really come at this work because of my conviction that there is so much that I personally can contribute to supporting people with ideas, to creating the necessary mindset changes in our society that I I'm sometimes very much consumed by it. I feel it's something that I can't stop doing because I think I see injustice and inequality in this world, but also because I see just how much privilege I have and I feel I need to share that. And, and you've been working, uh, I think, in so many countries uh, all over the world, so... Is there any particular moment maybe during that um, experience that has that is maybe a transformational point in your life that have influenced you and to make this choice or yeah I, I often I often think about these sort of aha moments that we all have right these transformational moments um, when we when we really I mean at least to me it feels like when we step into who we really are. To me, there, there isn't that one aha moment so much as more of a, 
Um, I would say, um, how should I? I would say it's, it's been more of a slow but very deep process of realization. And it comes very much from the legacy of my incredibly courageous grandparents who were both resistance fighters in the Second World War. And having them in my life as role models and as guides, I think, has been a huge influence to me. Not necessarily because I always agreed with them, but because I saw the passion and the courage that they put into building something better and into fighting something that they saw was wrong. And that's always been very much an influence in my life from, from an early, early age on. And I think that's what's really given me this sense of just having to do it. I don't think I, 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 I felt that I had an option to not be contributing to society. But the beauty of this is that I, it doesn't feel like a burden. It feels like a wonderful, precious gift, like a very generous gift of history that has allowed me to, to step into this very fully and, and accept it and find different ways of, of living that legacy, um, both in my prior life, in, in the political sphere, but also now um, supporting amazing people with their ideas. And, and when you were in that political world, um, what, did you, what did you learn there that made you take the next step? I, um, I entered politics at a very young age. I was, uh, I was 24 and, you know, I jokingly say that I really had no clue what I was getting myself into. And I think at the end of the day, that's true. <laughs> um, and maybe that was good because if I had known what I was getting myself into, maybe I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> so I think there's, there's also a beauty in, in not knowing sometimes. Uh, and not perfectly anticipating what's coming um, because it allows you to take adventurous steps um, uh, <laughs> more bravely. <laughs> um, what I learned there was I really understood a lot about what works in our political systems and what doesn't work. And I, I very quickly understood that one of the key things in, in politics is to understand the rules because that's the only way you can then go and break them. And that's the only way that you can then open up a different type of conversation, a different type of dialogue. Um, one of the things that I was very focused on during my uh, career as a politician was to open up political conversations for new types of stakeholders and particularly for young people. And, and to do that in a way that not only creates transparency and a sense of a deeper understanding of what's really going on behind the scenes, but also a sense of being able to participate more fully and to be taken serious um, and really enlarge 
the sphere of influence of politics. One of the things that I that I uh, you know I I worry about is that I often see politicians confine themselves to the boundaries of their roles. Right? They say, well, you know, we we can't you know solve the problem of people you know on the islands in greece refugees and children in the in in winter in tents and the rain because my parliament is not responsible for this somebody else has to take care of it and i think that's one of the reasons that i left politics is because i understood that there is um there's often a lot of i would say anxiety right uh people worry a lot about how certain things will impact their careers and i was just fed up with that i wanted to sh- make sure that we can drive the necessary changes in this world and not be limited by by these you know rules of the political game yeah no, i totally agree from what i know and have seen and so on and i'm always wishful when i'm thinking about my god we need new leaders but we can have other kinds of leaders in in the world It doesn't necessarily have to be from the from the space of, mm. of politics but one would wish to have an upgraded um system where things are not just some kind of superficial theater so to say where the ego is driving the game but rather the more an infinite mindset and and, and somebody who can even you know present a, a dream that we could all buy into that they truly believe in you know yeah yeah hmm. In, in terms of um, the world of, of business that has a lot of power of influence, um, what long-term solutions for business do you believe in? I think you said something really important just now, which is different actors in society have different roles to address issues, right? From healthcare to education from uh, you know gender equality to human rights and poverty alleviation and one of the one of the insights that i've gained over the last years is that if we confine ourselves to delegating responsibility to certain roles in society we will not be successful and i think we know that from innovation theory right um, unless you're creating diversity in um a process of creating a solution unless you have diverse perspectives in the conversation you're probably not going to get to the best to the best idea and i think the same holds true for for our world so one is how do we ensure that we have a diverse set of perspectives of even competing ideas in this world that jointly create sort of this big mosaic of solutions And the other is how do we ensure that all of those different actors that can have powerful roles actually step into their power as actors. And business has a huge role to play and it's very obvious and we see it, right? Because business um has resources and assets that social entrepreneurs do not have they have logistic chains they have uh, suppliers they have uh, market reach they have geographic reach they have technological innovations um that you know can be critical and key 
to uh, to to actually uh, solving problems. And just to give you uh, an example from from our work, um, we we have a number of uh, of very powerful uh, partnerships with with corporates. Um, you know, ranging from uh, pharmaceutical giants like Berger Ingelheim to luxury brands like Chanel. And why do they work with us in Ashoka Fellows is because we're all learning from these partnerships. There's a wonderful flow of ideas and exchange that happens during those partnerships. So if you look, uh, for example, at a partnership that we have with Berger Ingelheim, who are working in the space of health and healthcare? One of the um, the innovators that we're jointly supporting is uh, a man in Africa who is addressing the huge and really, really problematic issue of fake medicines. Something that we in our Western world hardly come across, but is a huge issue in Africa, Asia, and other parts of the world where, you know, you have ruthless um, people selling mostly the poorest of the poor fake medicines, some of them without any effect and in worst cases, even with detrimental effects. And so what he has created is a system that allows consumers to check the validity of, of, their, of the medicines that they're buying. And if you now look at how that matches up with the needs um, and the potential of pharmaceutical industries, you can immediately see the interconnections. You can immediately see how working together will profit both sides. Fantastic. And and in uh, and if you if we dream a little bit and say that you have um, Marie right now all doors open and all resources available. To you, what would you rush to innovate or change? You know, be it within your world where you are now or elsewhere. Hmm. I think what the current crisis and pandemic is showing me is that this is a unique moment for us as a world to really um, start a new way of addressing issues. And what do I mean by that? Um, I think as a, all of us are feeling that the complexity of, of the issues are, can simply not be addressed by one country, one government, one politician, one company, one social entrepreneur alone. So we need new types of collaborations, such as the one that I just outlined. But we also need a new culture of problem solving, one that focuses on ensuring that we as societies remain agile in our responses to what's happening around us. And that requires new skills, change-making skills. It requires us to be empathetic towards the other. It requires us to have the ability to lead, bring others on board, um, you know, help them see the power of something and, and co-create and work with them. Um, it, it requires us um, to change the way we think about success in society. 
You know, my dream is I really would love for us as societies across the world to leave behind our fetish of, you know, money as a measure of success and exchange that for the much deeper and I think much more relevant question of how are you contributing to solving the challenges of our world? I would love for people to be sitting at the dinner table and bragging about their contributions and not their expensive watches. Yeah, and I think that on a base level, all of us, regardless of where we live, and so we have this kind of inner desire for for meaning. So at the end of the day, especially when people are reaching maybe a level of life where they've already, you know, bought this kind of material stuff <laughs> that they think they needed uh, to make, to become successful and, and, and feel happy, uh, they understand that there's something missing. I think this is the component that you are now describing, that if we can contribute uh, beyond ourselves uh, and what we do uh, to other people and, and other systems around us, uh, that's what we're looking for, to tap into. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm, I'm, I so agree on, on what you just said. Um, is there any particular, like, one piece of advice that you would love to, for leaders uh, especially, that you would like to share? I think when I think about what's ahead of us um, and the, the uncertainty of the moment, one of the key ingredients of success that I've seen both inside my own organization, but also in the work of, of our most successful social entrepreneurs, those that have you know, been able to change multiple laws at national and international level, or who've been able to introduce wonderful and extremely important legislation around climate change, or have been able to completely revolutionize education systems in the world. One of the key ingredients of their work is always that they build trust, that they lead by trusting others, that they exemplify trustworthiness and that they ask others to not only trust them, but also themselves. And that that is an essential ingredient for all of us to make impossible things happen. And when we're able to build these cultures of trust in our teams, in our communities, in our societies, in our collaborations and partnerships, I think then we really are able to generate value for much more than just the involved parties or the beneficiaries. Then, you know, trust has this incredible ability to not only regenerate itself, but also to grow beyond and and uh, and multiply and, you know, become this sort of abundant resource. So for me, trust is the foundation of everything that I do and 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 the way that I lead. And I think is, is one of the key and possibly the best way to lead. <laughs> do, you, do you have a, an example of a, of a leader mm. that you, you know, admire or that that has this uh, ingredients of, of trust, so to say, in their leadership? I have to think about that a little bit. I've, I've mm -hmm. seen it in so many different leaders. And, um, mm -hmm. and I want to say that, for example, in the work of, of one of our Ashoka fellows, 
Edith Schlaffer, a fabulous uh, social entrepreneur from Austria, trust is is actually completely changing the way we think about security policy. And what do I mean by that? She is working with frontline communities across the world to address radical uh, Islamism. And the way she's doing it is by building more trusting communities, by empowering mothers, but also fathers, to have trusting and open dialogue with their children, but also their communities in order to prevent radicalization. And what she's doing is essentially by identifying women as key leaders in communities and by trusting them that they can play this empowering role, not only for their families, but for the communities. And by giving them the tools to trust the young people in these communities and creating an open, safe space to share ideas and opinions, she is de-escalating situations. And, and it, it's there that you see this rippling effect, right, of one social mm. entrepreneur with an insight that is trusting a woman, a mother in this community, and then that becomes a rippling effect of trust and open dialogue and of exchange of ideas and of, you know, a an atmosphere that changes and opens up and allows people to share opinions without having to radicalize. To me, that's one of the most powerful examples that I can think of. It must be wonderful to just be surrounded in your environment with all these, uh, you could say, heroes in a way um, that are designing these solutions. Yes. I mean, one of the reasons that I think my... I, I enjoy so much what I do is because of of, of this great, mm. wonderful community that, that I'm allowed to be part of. Yes, for sure. Mm. Is there any part of your world of social innovation that is frustrating? Hmm. Of course. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, nothing is perfect. Uh, no, no. But if it's something kind of specific to that world that, that is kind of repeating itself. There are moments when, when I see people wanting to be part of this world um, and attracted by these ideas, by these solutions. Um, and then maybe not, you know, spending enough time to listen well, mm. what works really well and what doesn't. I think as in, as in most industries, you know, our world also is inhabited by people who mean well, but are doing the right things. And being specific about understanding impact and understanding that creating impact is is pretty tough and hard and and requires just as much professionalism and skills and know-how and resources as driving a big business i think that that is something that i'm sometimes i sometimes struggle with and um and i you know have learned to accept that you know, 
some people maybe will not be part of that community and choose not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess it's, it's in a way it's about collective awareness about how things are and where they are, where they stand and then how they individually see themselves. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think it's also, I mean, let's be honest here. Uh, changing mindsets, building organizations with 14,000 employees, building organizations with, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, partners across the world requires a lot of skill and experience and a lot of resources and, you know, leadership. And everyone can be and should have the skills to be a change maker. Not everyone necessarily will be a leading social entrepreneur, and that's okay. And and how do you define leading social entrepreneur? In our world, in Ashoka, we look at a number of criteria. We we look at um, both the entrepreneurial quality of the founder and her ability to overcome hurdles, to be driven towards an impact goal, the creativity needed to, you know, master the barriers and mobilize resources, think out of the box. We also look at her innovation and to understand whether it's truly systems changing, because that is also what differentiates people in our network, Ashoka Fellows, from a lot of people that are, that are you know, founding NGOs and doing other important work, is that you can only become an Ashoka Fellow if you are really, truly changing a system. If you, you know, there is this saying that I think many people know, you know, if somebody's hungry, don't give them fish, teach them how to fish. But our social entrepreneurs go a step further. They don't, they don't only teach people how to fish. They change the entire fishing industry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what we look for. It's changing the industry. It's changing the market. It's changing perceptions. It's changing rules. It's inventing new roles. Uh, that, that's what we look for. Truly systems changing entrepreneurs. That was a good uh, description. Um, we all, lo- you know, learn things in, in life sometimes uh, soon, sometimes later. But is there anything that you you'd like to give yourself, you know, an advice? Let's say fifteen or so years ago. Uh, what would that be? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a fierce you know, feminist in my ways, in my own ways. Um, and one of the things that I've, that I've learned is that, you know, women, especially if they're young, very often don't trust themselves enough, don't trust their abilities, you know, question themselves, um, often shy away from jumping into the cold water or, you know, taking up a challenge. And so, and I, I have had my share of that, you know, advice to my, you know, younger self is trust yourself, trust that you will learn what you need to learn, 
be open and curious and, and, you know, give hard things a try. And when you fail, try again. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is, though, it is really difficult in our, the world of ours because I think we're all in different um, phases of our lives, like absorbed by the fact that, oh, my God, if we fail, what are others going to think or say or whatever, right? Like the, the judgment. But we are the biggest, toughest judges. I mean, because people are so focused on themselves that they might not even notice that you failed. I mean, <laughs> that's right? an interesting argument why eccentricity is actually good. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think you're right, right? Very often. And in particular, I see this with a lot of very bright, intelligent, smart young women is that they're their worst judges. And yeah, that's, that's not helpful <laughs> for sure. <laughs> in in any case, we need more feminine energy more than uh, right. <laughs> so, um, and and what do you think is the most most important thing now for companies to focus on? I really see, with everything that's happening around us, there is no denying that the world needs to change and is changing, and that we either design for the changes we want to see, that we change the cultures of our companies towards a less hierarchical leadership structure, more innovation, more entrepreneurship, more intrapreneurship, more openness, or we'll simply not be able to, I mean, we'll simply fail. So to me, it's quite clear that the old school leadership of one person at the top who knows what to do and, you know, tells everyone else what their place is. It's just super outdated. And on top of that, I do think that companies that don't assume their responsibility for their communities and societies will also be failing sooner or later. Absolutely. But this transformation of culture, I mean, if you build a new, new um, entity of some kind, Uh, it's another thing. Uh, it's easier. It's more kind of, it's flowing easily. Uh, if there is a current system in place, a medium or bigger size company in place that needs to transform into this, let's say, more agile, more humanized leadership uh, model um, and way of functioning, what is your experience? What is the biggest, um, best or best advice actually you can give those? How do they go about it? Well, we inside Ashoka um, have been going through a pretty deep transformation process ourselves towards a culture of leadership where everyone leads. And what I can say from that experience, working with 25 teams across Europe, uh, you know, a couple of hundred people in teams, is that, again, it all goes back to trusting each other. It all goes back to creating a climate where people can openly share, where, you know, we have conflict and we solve it <laughs> and mm. where we respect each other for our different opinions and find the best solutions. And it is hard. I mean, it is hard and it's, it's, a, real, it's a real challenge for me as a leader every day. But I think it's so worth it. It's so worth it because it makes us 
better in so many ways as individuals, as leaders, as team leaders, as team members, as drivers for social change. So, you know, it really, you know, increases our impact. And so I, yeah, I would always go back to this foundational quality of, of, of creating trust, of, you know, leaving behind our sort of old 19th century mechanisms of control, command and control, and asking ourselves, how can we trust? How can we nurture each other's potential? How can we truly step into the best into the best people we can be and and how do we create those environments for each other and um just uh, yesterday i happened to talk to uh, a professor in the us and she's really specialized on amy edmondson she specialized on on this well organizational change in general but also um this term of psychological safety right yes hmm. Where you, where you really, how do you create this kind of fearless organization and uh, safety in the, in the workplace for, for, for learning, for innovation and growth and so on. Um, and that's really, that's really also, according to her experience, really so yeah. incredibly, incredibly yeah. important to take the lead in that. Um, yes. Yeah. And it, it, it means, you know, being vulnerable and, you know, making mistakes and admitting to them and apologizing for them and, you know what I take from 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 the work of, of Amy Edmondson is is not to be afraid to make mistakes, and to yeah to listen to each other and 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 you know find find the best way forward, and that's that's going to build the foundations. Yeah, hmm. um, and I, I also remember we spoke about special challenges, which is how do you communicate. Um, you know, whatever could be perceived as criticism, especially if it's to to somebody who is, I don't know, your boss or, or somebody. So that kind of trust that if we give feedback, we give it for the right reasons. And, and, and that whole dynamic is incredibly complex, but ex- extremely important. Uh, and at the same time, if we share the same kind of big dream or the big idea we are working for, uh, then it's even more okay to be super transparent and, uh, and and be guided by trust when we communicate, question things, uh, ask things, and so on. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and we've just gone through a number of iterations where we've asked team members for feedback on, you know, a number of initiatives that we started over the last months. And, and that's hard because it's, you know, you're out in the open and you're vulnerable and you show yourself and yes, of course you, you are not going to be perfect and you will have made mistakes <laughs> and that's not easy. <laughs> I, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a great German word, you know, that I just, I find no way of translating, but it's called, it's a Zumutung. You know, and what Sumutung really says is, is that we ask so much courage, you know, from mm-hmm. people, but at the same time, the word also has a connotation of it's actually, it's asking too much, right? So there's always that ambivalence. Mm. I personally en- hugely enjoy it when I don't hate it, uh, because it helps me to learn and to grow as a person. Yeah, it's it's all about kind of keeping the ego in some kind of uh, 
in the right place hmm. when you when you take in feedback and and discuss things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my so Marie, my final question to you is this one: What do you think the world needs most at this time? The world needs courage. The world needs people who step into their own power and who 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 do what they know needs to be done, and you know who change their communities and their societies. Yeah. No, I totally, totally, totally agree. And and we can all do so much more and we just need to kind of allow ourselves to step into that um, power that we have. And um, I think also think big. Yeah. And support each other. I think the, it's really important that we have a couple of people close to us that are in a way our supporters and accountability partners or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> so because together everything is both better and, and somehow easier. Yeah. Yes, we are who we surround us ourselves with, right? We should never forget that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Marie. Um, lovely. Thank you so, so much for, for sharing everything. And remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Marie. And please rate and review also this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you so, so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and also remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, Marie. Thank you. Bye-bye.